Hello, sword people. This is Guy Windsor, also known as the Sword Guy, and I'm here today with Maya Soderholm, who, amongst other things, is an exponent of Visayan-style Corto Cadena Larga Mano Escrima. I'll get her to explain what all that means. And she is uh, a knife designer and has started a company with Rory Miller and Toby Cowan uh, and has produced the first knife, Vari, a, a couple of years ago, and the new knife is out in, by the time this goes live, the new knife will be available, and it's a very exciting-looking project. So, without further ado, Maya, welcome to the show. Hey, Guy. Nice to uh, be chatting with you again. Yeah, it's been a while. We met at Sword Squatch, as I recall, and uh, I enjoyed talking to you there. And as always at these events, um, you never get to talk long enough to the people you're actually interested in talking to. There's always something happening to drag you away. So... Just so we can sort of locate everyone, um, where in the world are you? Um, I am in Oakland, California. Okay, but that's not where you're originally from, correct? No. <laughs> when people say <laughs> now, I know the answer to this question, but go, go ahead and feel free to explain. Uh, when people say where are you from, it becomes more complicated. Um, I was born in London in Hammersmith. And um, that's where I grew up, and I moved here in right around when I hit 30 years old. Um, but my family emigrated to England from Finland because um, my mother worked at the Finnish embassy, and my father was working, I think, on a job placement somewhere, and they ended up uh, staying and marrying in the UK. And so technically, I have no English blood. I am Finnish. Um, and 23 me will attest to this. And um, okay. yes, but the accent is English, um, but I live in America. So it's probably tinned with Americanisms also. Okay. Well, you know, anyone who has been listening to the show long enough, um, I have a long standing affection for Finland. And, you know, I made my children move to the UK from Finland four years ago, and neither of them are very happy about it. So. <laughs> I'm sure you can sympathize. Do you ever get to go back to Finland? Um, in my childhood, I spent all my summers there. Um, okay. And But since my grandmother died, which is quite a few years ago now, I haven't really gone back. Honestly, after 9-11, the flights probably doubled in price and it became much more difficult to justify spending, you know, thousands of dollars, sure. um, you know, to go away for a couple of weeks. Um, being self-employed, as you know, you don't get paid when you are not working. So... It became oh, I know that well. yes. yeah, arduous to go, though I miss it. And obviously the U.S. is not exactly a place to grow old in, so part of me really kind of wants to go back. <laughs> <laughs> so how's your Finnish? Kiitos, että kysyit. Now, if I understand that correctly, that's a bit rusty. Thanks for asking. Yes, it, it, very good. Yes, exactly, exactly that. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, okay, well, I'm sure your knives aren't rusty. So I've had a look at your website. I don't, I've never actually handled one of your knives, but I very much want to. And of course, I'll be putting pictures and links in the show notes so people can go and see the glorious curves of the beautiful Vari. Um, and it says on the website, um, the website, I will put it in the show notes as well, of course, but that's somicoknives.com, um, that you are partly inspired by the pool pot, the finished knife. Yes, indeed. So um, I like, there's, there's two main influences, really. Okay, there's three in the Vari, but the two main ones are from 
Finland and this idea of a daily carry knife. My grandfather carried all the time. He was a big fisherman um, and he just carried a pulpka everywhere. Actually, you know, a lot of my family, when you're out at the Kesamaki, the, the summer cottage, you just carry a knife everywhere because it's so useful. And so I really wanted to design something that was like the knife, like the knife. But of course, because I'm in the US, I was also inspired the first time around with this idea of the frontiersman and the Bowie knife and something, again, maybe a little bit, you know, bigger and more of a camp knife than, than just the pulpka that could do more sort of jobs. And then the other really huge influence, obviously, is, is Sunny Umpard, my uh, screamer teacher, who um, fabricated all his own training weapons and um, modified blades that were given to him to a very specific kind of Filipino style feel. Um, and um, we'll talk a lot more about that, I hope, because it's one of the things that sure. I never really understood until I trained with him is, is how the design of a weapon dictates how it moves. Like you can really feel the personality of different shapes of blades. And so that totally influenced how I designed the Vari. And now the new one, which is actually coming out this week, um, called the Moika. Which is like high in Finnish. Yes, it's like, the hello. hello blade. <laughs> I, I can imagine, yes, you, you put it out and it's like, hello. <laughs> yeah, and this is actually slightly more like a bulka, actually, but kind of like a Filipino-style recurve on a bulka. <laughs> wow. I, I think I can, I can feel my, my knife collection sort of growing as we speak. <laughs> Yeah, the Vari ended up actually oh. being really the granddaddy of blades. It's actually a really big knife. I mean, it, it, it's it's a big, heavy, it moves really interestingly um, with the balance point and stuff. I was very specific. I actually sat, and, sat next to the fabricator, this guy called Will Capron, <clears throat> and we worked on the uh, grinding until the balance point was exactly where I wanted it because that, to me, is one of the key okay. elements in, in, in like blade design. And so it's, uh, you know, a little bit forward of the guard, you know, and so that it kind of tips forward, but it's not totally tip heavy. But anyway, sorry, carry on. No, 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 that, that's so, so you were there sort of, um, you'd take off a bit of metal, you'd handle it and go, mm, not quite. And then you take off a bit more somewhere else and you'd go, yeah, that's closer. And so he would just, he just sort of got it to the point where it was right. And then all the rest to produce the same shape. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, Will was wonderful to work with. Uh, and knife makers can be notoriously difficult and very um, opinionated. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. Um, but Will I was. Know knife makers <laughs> but Will was really amazing. I mean, he really wanted me to get my vision, you know. And so he really tried not to sort of insert himself too much in it, apart from his expertise in saying, well, we're really going to have to, you know, this can't be, a, you know, we're going to hollow out the tang with some holes and stuff. And, you know, we're going to have to do this to get what you want, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, he really used his technical expertise to get me what I wanted. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it sort of sits on its tip. You can bang on the back of it with a hammer. You know, it's, 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 it's sort of a real indestructible kind of blade but it moves really nice and um you know technically it like you know if you're imagining yourself in sort of victorian era or frontier era you know frontiersman in america you know in america you could actually use it as a self-defense tool too so i mean and looking at it you would you know quite happily use it for you know trimming trees back i mean it's, it's it has it looks like it has a pretty hefty kind of chopping action yeah, you can definitely start a fire with it, and and yes, 
yeah, build a shelter. Um, I do have one question, given that it's got some finished DNA in there. Can you open a bottle of beer with it? Oh, yeah. Well, that's the really important thing. <laughs> I mean, I've spent enough time in Finnish summer cottages to know that a knife that can't open a bottle of beer is completely useless. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously use the back edge. Don't use the edge edge. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. So um, how did you sort of end up getting together with Rory Miller and Toby Callan to produce this company and start making knives? Um, I met Rory right when he started, when he came back from um, Iraq where he was working as a private contractor um, and he came back to the US to, um, and he decided to teach, I guess. I don't know if he came back to teach, but he decided that he was going to start teaching. And um, a friend of mine had pointed me towards his blog, the Chiron Training blog, and um, I really liked what he was writing because it was it was one of the few people who was thinking in the same way that I had been taught to think by Maestro Impard, Sonny Impard. I'm only calling him Maestro now he's dead because he hated it in real life, just so we know. So I'll probably okay. use those interchangeably. Um, Sonny taught okay. in a very, very in, like intuitive way, very – one on one in his living room. Um, he developed a method called random flow. So there was no preset patterns, no drills, no nothing. And uh, he died okay. young at the age of 58 in 2006. And uh, I was kind of devastated because he had ruined me from going to any other martial art classes. It was incredibly boring okay. and dull, and I couldn't stand it. So I was searching really seriously to try and find people that would do something a little bit more, I'm not going to say realistic, but so, sort of more realistic, you know, something that wasn't by rote and it wasn't by you do this, I do that kind of thing. First, I found the combatives um, scene, which I guess was, you know, starting around that time in the East sort of, you know, early 2000s. And uh, find a fa- found a couple of people in there, found Mick Coop and uh, Steve Morris, did a bit of training with them. And then, like I said, this this blog turned up and I started reading Rory's material. I was like, oh, my God, he's really good. And um, he had just written that book, Meditations on Violence, and that had been released. And oh, that is such a good book. Yeah, it is. It's That's still my one favorite. Of those books where, yeah, every, every martial artist who at least pretends to be a martial artist should read that book. If they haven't read that book, there's something they are critically missing. I know. And it's funny because since then he's written many, many other books that are all great, but they're much more mannered. Yeah. And I really like that first one because it's much, it speaks much more from the soul, if you like. That the darkness in that, I think, is, and is, is much more prevalent. So it really hit me much harder, I think, than some of his other more mannered books. Um, regardless. Well, I mean, they're all good. But yes. that one is, is the, I would agree, that one is like the standout. If there's just one book on martial arts you read, that's probably the book you should read. I agree. Funny that you agree too. I'm very happy about that. Um, so yeah so anyway so on the blog he wrote that he was um about to go on a seminar tour and did anybody want to host him so i wrote immediately back said absolutely um and then he was like oh you're all in the bay area somebody's already you know doing something in san francisco and i was like brilliant i'll just come to that and um a weird thing happened in that he said all right i'm flying in like thursday the thing was starting on saturday he always likes to fly in early to his seminars he's like if anybody wants to train with me friday you know, message me. I was like, oh yeah. Right. So I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> and I was the only person that did. And so wow. 
I basically got to pick him up from the, the, the BART is like the underground here. So I, I, I basically, when he mm-hmm. came from the airport and, you know, came into town, I picked him up. Um, I'm actually like reading the last chapters of Meditations on Violence as I'm sitting in the car <laughs> waiting for him to come out of the train station. <laughs> and uh, that was it. I got to spend a whole day with him. And I was like, this is brilliant. This is this is fantastic. And then we hit, him, hit it off, really. And um, I watched him work and I was like, oh, my God, he's really, really clever. Because um, it showed me a lot of the material. I think he sort of beta tested it on me a little bit on that Friday because it was one of his earliest seminars about how he was going to teach. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he kept showing me things I'd never thought about, you know, like blindsiding me with things. And I love that where I'm just like, I never thought about that. I never thought about that. Oh, my goodness, that totally makes sense. And so then I watched him over that weekend work this room, very disparate room of traditional martial artists, you know, young people, old people, women, men, you know, a real big group. And it was really fascinating to watch how he worked this group. So in a sense, because I'd seen the material before, one of the things that really impressed me about him was how he taught and how he managed a group of people. And I was like, oh, you're really good at that. So, yeah, yeah, I've been to one of his seminars in, in Holland about five years ago. It was where I actually met him for the first time. Uh, we, com- we communicated back and forth by email and stuff for some years before that. But, um, yeah, and he, he certainly he certainly had no trouble getting a very large group, which had lots of different people in it and some gigantic egos present because, you know, martial artists are all raging egotists, or we tend to be anyway. Um, and, yeah, he just he just – managed to what's the word it was like he was conducting an orchestra yep exactly after the seminar i emailed him and i said uh thank you for the seminar that was really amazing i said um you know i'm really happy that you're not a self-actualized predator because you would be really scary (laughs) (laughs) yes and we can all be grateful that rory's not a psychopath yeah and and he wrote back he said and just a really simple little email he said my wife won't let me. <laughs> I yeah. Brilliant. I was like, all right, I like this, man. This is great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so that, that was um, a few years ago, and that's how you met Rory. So what made you guys think to like start a company making knives? Well, um, I met Toby through Rory, actually. Rory was doing some of uh, Toby's wilderness training seminars. Um, Toby lives in uh, northern Sweden above the Arctic Circle, and he's a, you know, he's a wilderness guide and a survival guy. Uh, his speciality is actually cold climates, but regardless. And he's, uh, he was in Maine, I think, or in Massachusetts doing something there, and that's how Rory and Toby met. And um, I guess Toby teaches very much in the same way that Rory does in that it's it's just very intuitive and Rory told me the story that he said they all met somewhere went to wherever they were going to camp out for a few days and the first thing Toby said is all right everybody's going on a garbage patrol we're picking up garbage you know and at first he thought oh well that's nice you know we're sort of cleaning up the forest that's all worthy but no the reason for picking up all the garbage is they're going to look through it and start finding uses for it and so that's how they then hit it off as far as you know seeing the world in a different way and um yeah yeah and then toby came here to the west coast because he got invited here to do something and um i ended up kind of hosting them both at my house they both stayed here and um toby and i again totally hit it off straight away we have sort of a lot in common 
especially because he lives in Scandinavia too now. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, so that was it. We became sort of good friends. And over the years, I mean, this is quite a long time ago now. And then over the years, we were sort of like hatching all these plans. And um, I can't remember who came up with the idea of like getting together and making this. But Toby has a whole bunch of ideas about what sensible, you know, tools look like. And so do I. And, you know, because the three of us were sort of, you know, friends, we were like, why don't we just do this? Like, all right. And so, you know, we did. <laughs> so that's really it. <laughs> very, very organic. Nothing really planned, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but this is sort of later on in your martial arts career. So how did you actually get started? What, what um, did that look like? Well, I watched St. Trinian's movies when I was yeah. a child. And I okay. – um, do you remember The Flashing Blade? Saturday morning television. Yeah, I, do fight yeah, I never got to really watch it because I was living abroad. But yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, I saw one or two episodes. You can still find it on YouTube. I can't remember. It's like badly dubbed. I think it's French. Um, that Errol Flynn movies. I really, really always loved swashbuckling movies. This was like when I was really small, and we had this yeah. kind of pointy pair of salad implements in the drawer, and I'd run around the house with those, pretending they were you know, Swords. weapons and stuff. Yes. And so my parents took me to a fencing class. They're like, oh, look, fencing class in the neighborhood. So I started fencing, for fencing, when I was like nine, I guess, or something like that. And um, I did that for a few years. But, you know, I think other things took over. When I was like a teenager, I didn't really know what to do with it. So I quit that. But that love of swords has always been there. And... um I guess after that, there was, I mean, there was no HEMA at that time. There was no, you know, opportunities to do anything other than, sure. you know, that kind of style of fencing. And it always annoyed me that I wasn't allowed to do sabre. Girls were only allowed to do four. Oh, no. that then. Yeah. What? That's yeah. outrageous. I know. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, um, the next thing I did was when I was at university. Actually, I just graduated uni and I was living down in Bath. And I used to go work out at this uh, gym that was underneath the labor club in this cold, dank basement. And uh, one of the other guys that was always down there early in the mornings had a really interesting style of, like, lifting. And I was like, wow, that's really fascinating. Like, he was working reverses and all these things. I mean, this is, like, the early 80s, so it was, you know, way back. Or mid-80s, I suppose. And um, I was like, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm going to a Tai Chi class. I'm, I'm sort of using some of the principles for my weightlifting. I was like, whoa, that's so weird. Okay. Let's go find this out, and uh, it happened to be right around the corner from where I was living. And uh, I went to a first class there, and uh, this guy was teaching, and he was like, "All right, stand like this, put your arms like this, kind of thing." And it was freezing, you know, UK mm. winter, damp, cold, yeah. church hall. And I started sweating, and my heart rate went up, and I was like, "Ooh, this is fascinating." And that was it. After that, I was kind of hooked on doing um, Chinese internal martial arts for a long time. Uh, so I started with that, found some Xingyi, then some Bagua, and then Bagua has really become my thing, Bagua Zhang, you know, the whole thing where you walk around around in circles. So I got absolutely okay. jazzed about that. And so I've been doing that the longest. Um, <clears throat> and then I found Sunny because I was actually at the school where I was training the Chinese stuff, and the head teacher at that school was training with Sunny, and he had a VHS tape playing in the background. And I saw Sunny move, and it was really hilarious because I, it was like seeing something that I'd actually been looking for ever since I was watching St. Trinian's movies. I was like, that's it. That's what I want to do. Uh, that's amazing. That's what okay. I want. 
And then it took me, you know, a couple of years to manage to actually get invited to train with him because his students were super protective and about like letting people know where he was or anything. Like he was totally underground. Um, but I finally got in and uh, in 2000 and then I trained with him until he died. And it was amazing. That, that wow. probably opened my eyes more than absolutely anything else. It made everything else make sense in a way, if you like. Okay. okay. Um, how does that work? What do you mean? Say that again. Well, okay. Um, random flow, Stanley's approach to uh, the martial arts in general and how to move and how to perceive combat, all that sort of thing. I don't think anybody listening or maybe one or two have any idea of what um, that looks like. I've seen you do some work with students when we were at Sword Squatch. And that's also one of the reasons why I invited you on the show. So, because it seems like a really interesting approach. Could you kind of go into some depth about what it, what it is exactly that you do? Yeah. So um, if you look at Sonny's early curriculums, he came from the Philippines. He emigrated to America in 1969 when he was 21. His father had um, American citizenship because he was in the U.S. Navy. And so Sonny had the option of coming here and claiming that if he wanted it, and which he did. His parents basically sent him here, which he hated, but regardless – um, and so martial arts was his kind of connection to home and he was hu hugely passionate about it. He had two great passions, dancing and martial arts. And, um, yeah. And, uh, he used to, um, just train with other people for a while. Then slowly he started to train the bouncers at the nightclubs where he used to go dance and, um, and he taught some people for a while. And then he realized that all the stuff that he was teaching them was not manifesting when they were sparring. And so at one point in the mid to late 90s, he had sort of an epiphany. It was like, there's something missing. There's a missing stage between learning what to do and free sparring. And he figured out that the, the why and the when were missing. So... He was inspired by a, um, well, this is how the story goes. It might not be exactly true, but he was inspired by um, cha-cha and partner dancing um, because the dancing that he was really into, that he was good at, which is the 80s, remember, was partner dancing. So he was a hustle dancer. That was his thing, which is a partner dance. So this idea of moving around with somebody and then, you know, your touch being the indicator to what happens next, you know, so that yeah. – there's all these moves within the dance that can happen, uh, but then you choose to do what you do when. So this idea of constant movement came to his mind as a way to span that gap, which could add in the why and the when. You know, like it would give the what you're going to do meaning. And so he developed this idea of random flow, which is not sparring in that you're not trying to win, but you're trying to insert a technique or an idea into time. And the basic premise is don't get hit. That was that was the, you know, that would dictate why you were doing what you were doing. That was like the, the you know the base level. It's like why are you you know moving out the way. It's because they're coming at you with that hit. Why are you blocking? It's because that hit is going to hit you and you can't get out the way. That kind of stuff. So it's just a me method of moving around that's continuous. There's like an ebb and flow. Um, we call the base movement a pendulum because it basically um, consists of a, um, an in and an out. So in, in effect, if we look at relativity, if we're both moving 
you know, if I step back when you step forward and then you step back when I step forward and you kind of smooth that out and stuff, that, that is our equivalent of standing still because the range is not changing. If you start to take an angle or you're moving at a slightly different speed than the other person, accelerating, decelerating at different times, now the range changes. Mm-hmm. So that then gives you the opportunities to do what you need to do. So that's what random flow basically is, is this constant motion. It's not preset. There's nothing that you know is going to happen next, but opportunities arise, and those opportunities are what you're trying to see. Okay, so you're basically creating an unstable base. So well, it's not really necessarily to... about balance. I mean, if that's what you mean. It's about... No, I don't mean like physically unstable. I mean... Um, rather than well, you know, in a basic martial arts um, setup for a basic drill, you've got two beginners or whatever. One of them is standing still, the other one steps in with a strike, and the one that was standing still then does some sort of defense. And that's kind of how they tend to be structured. So what you're doing is you're is you're taking that when they're both standing still, and everybody knows that one of them is going to move first. You're taking that away, and so they're actually everybody is moving, and it's. So it's an unstable base rather than a stable base because it's in motion. Yeah, and the, and the, and the thing is that the the base idea is that you need to be making decisions. So yeah, the reason why these preset ideas come about is because if X happens, you know, Y can happen or might be a good idea. So the, what the motion adds is that the person doing the feeding doesn't feed unless they're close enough to actually get the hit in. And then the other person has to notice if the hit is actually close enough to hit them, which is why they have to block, say. You know, like if you're looking at something simple like that. So it it takes the reason why you're doing the thing that you're doing and puts it sort of center forward instead of you must do X because, you know, which which means you're never actively engaging that part of the mind that's making a decision. The decision is always given to you if you're standing still and doing something that's preset. So that decision-making becomes part of the training from, like, day one. And it can be super simplified, right? It doesn't have to be anything goes. It can be I'm going to do a cut from high right or, you know, high left, you know, like a diagonal cut, like kesar, if you like, in in Japanese terminology. And it's like you don't know which one's coming, but whichever one comes, I need you to, you know, block or move or whatever it is. So, you know, that, that... Light element of randomness is what makes now your mm-hmm. vision, um, your um, way to try and find precursors, all that stuff that's going on inside your sensory system kick in in a way that it doesn't if you know what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. I, I, I use something similar in uh, the way I structure the drills that I, I use for my students, where even if it's a very simple drill, um, one of the ways that we can randomize it or, or make it more interesting is okay you, when teaching an absolute beginner with big swords and what have you usually they're both standing still then one of them moves first okay and then you can have an alternative version of the same drill where if there's an opportunity to do it the other person can move first and prevent the action that was about to occur and then you can have well either one of them can move first and then you make them start from out of measure and come towards each other so they're actually in motion before the drill even begins and so you ha- they, ha- they have to actually look for the pattern of movement in their opponent and see when it is appropriate to make the strike that they want to make. Yeah, exactly. So something very similar to that. I mean, the, the trick is yeah. so that um, to learn new skills is to 
let things happen to you on some level. So that kind of fear level and the ego is a real barrier to this kind of training, which is why a lot of people don't do it, I think. Um, And so there's a skill, I think, that Sonny had in making the what you your job um something that you could actually focus on like i don't actually have to worry about you actually hitting me for instance it's all i'm looking at is the openings in between your strikes for instance so i can focus on that then we put the thing back in again you know where i am actually in danger so now my my choice sort of you know goes up a level of difficulty if you like so it's sort of um just like pad holding in empty hand that's actually the most difficult job um, in this oh, yeah. way too. That's, that's a skills. Yeah, it's like I, I had the opportunity to train with a master dancer who could lead me into decisions, if you like. You know yeah. that, that were realistic. Whereas if you have two people that don't really know what they're doing, you can't actually see all this information within the movement. You're like, are they open? I don't know. Are they close enough? I don't know. What am I meant to do? I have no idea, right? So in a sense, you have to give people jobs depending on their level of skill. If people train with me, you know, I can make you move left, right. I can make you cut. I can show you openings. I can show you the danger of why you shouldn't take that opening, you know. So my job is to, you know, give you opportunities to explore this whole fight game you know, but like piece by piece and then stack those pieces together, which is why it's, it's kind of, you know, garage training, it's backyard training. It's not, it's not designed for a huge format. You know, it's very old traditional style of training Filipino martial arts. Okay. Um, yeah, it, it doesn't sound like it's optimized for teaching a room for the 30, 15 year olds. Well, um, no. <laughs> but, no, and honestly, Sonny wouldn't teach 15 year olds blades anyway, actually. He refused to teach anybody under uh, 21 edged weapons. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fair enough. Um, but now, still, same thing uh, applies. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. Now, one thing I sort of forgot to mention in the introduction, uh, despite my notes, um, is your books. Uh-huh. So your first book, yeah, we've got to get those in there somewhere, haven't we? That's, <laughs> so your first book, The Liar, The Cheat, and The Thief, came out in 2014. Um, so obviously I'd like you to tell us about the book, um, what led you to write it and, uh, what's been the best thing about having it out there for you? Um, I wrote it because Sonny really wanted us to continue his ideas. And I was actually named as one of his lineage, lineage holders of his system. And, um, I am the wrong gender and the wrong nationality or ethnicity to really be taken that seriously as a FMA teacher. Um, And so I wanted to do my part to try and share his ideas in the system. Um, Also from a personal level, my interest is the tactical thinking. I've always been, I'm not really tiny human being, but I've always been less strong less tall, less aggressive than most of the people I've done martial arts with. And it got really tiring losing, you know, even if you're doing techniques, you know, when you're working with somebody that's just being really obnoxious and you can't pull something off, there's part of your brain that goes, you know what, this doesn't work. Why am I, you know, this doesn't work or what's wrong with me or why can't I make this work? And I never really got the answers to that, you know, until much later when the teacher's like, oh, well, if they're resisting, then don't do that, do this. And then you're like, oh, there's actually other, re- there's yeah. other things I can do. 
you know, and then training with Sonny. Sonny was the per- first person that taught me how to weaponize disadvantage and how you can use the assumptions that people have about you against them. And to, so he basically taught me how to think tactically and how to move people around and basically be like a puppeteer, like a puppet master. And so um, I just, you know, I didn't want to write another book about Sonny, which was, look, here's the pictures of Sonny and these are the things you did. And here's a bunch of still photographs. with him. we have fun training together, yeah. Oh, it's like gag. You can't learn anything about those. So all those things to get, came together and I was like, yeah, okay. I could actually start writing about what I learned from him and what was important about tactical thinking. And of course, because I did want to teach one of the things he had asked me to do, honestly, right before he died, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a cliche, but he basically, one of the last things he said to me was, don't teach preset patterns or drills or choreographed drills. Shit. Okay. So after he died, that was my job. It's like, how do I teach something that I can have people do, but that people don't necessarily know how to do by themselves, like if they don't train with me? You know, how do I spread the ideas that he has? So all the drills in the books, <clears throat> in that book, are things that I've come up with. Some of them are ones we used to do in class with him. Um, some are modified versions of that, and some are ones that I've actually invented to try and get people to start random flowing and doing the tactical thinking. So that's that's why the book is what it is. So some background at the beginning, and then there's a bunch of drills in the back. Um, and... What's best about having it out there? I guess what's best is the, um, the the breadth of field of people that have got something out of it. So most of the people I teach now are not Filipino practitioners, Filipino martial art practitioners. They're HEMA people. They're Chinese martial art people that have these sword forms that they don't know what to do with. And now suddenly they have a format in which to discover how something that, you know, has these moves in it but have zero context might work or how they put their shingy, you know, uh, sword drills into something more meaningful. So it's given a vehicle to a whole bunch of different people to think about their arts in a different way and that is, like, hugely gratifying. Which I can imagine that's sort of what inspired you to write the next book, The Hustler, Swordplay and the Art of Tactical Thinking. Yeah, actually, yes. I, I, I that I didn't know I had another book in me, honestly, um, because I was like, "All right, well, that's it. I've said everything." And then somebody asked me <laughs> to do a talk, and I was driving around speaking out loud to, um, you know, work out how long stuff took because you know you get like twenty minutes or something to talk, and you know, so I was just literally trying to create a logic arc of why Sonny's work was important and, and, you know, looking at tactical thinking and all the misconceptions. Mm -hmm. And I kept having all these ideas and I was like, Oh my goodness, it's actually a book. (laughs) Yeah. That book almost. Those are the best books. Yeah. (laughs) And um, I'm really quite happy with that book because I think it actually explains everything. The first one does have the whole drills in it. So it's sort of only really applicable if you're actually playing with weapons with someone else. But, you know, it does have history and some fun. I, I think that does describe pretty much all of the listeners, all of the, all of the target listeners to this show. So, you know, you're amongst friends here. Oh, well, thank you. But but The Hustler, I think, is more of a mind-expanding book in general and a way to look at what martial arts are actually for and perhaps why they're misunderstood 
and how they're taught, how maybe how a lot of them are taught is leading to the misunderstandings. Um, Mm -hmm. And I called it the hustler because, of course, Sonny was a hustle dancer. So it seemed like super appropriate. And then this idea of this mindset of getting away with something, you know, the don't get hit part was so important for Sonny. He's like, there's no point. It's like, don't die doing this. It's like, everybody wants to die. Like the double death is somehow like a win. And it's like, no, it's not a double death. is not a win. You know, everybody's pretty, it's pretty easy to learn how to hit somebody. It's not hard. It's really not hard, but it gets much harder when they're trying to hit you back. And it gets much, much harder if you actually care if they actually do. And so to me, that is the big part that's missing. So I try to explore why people are okay with that. Like what drives us to be okay with the the double hit and think that's that's some sort of glorious death, you know? And then looking more at maybe what our role model should be, like pickpockets, you know, their whole point is to steal mm. and not be found out, right? You know, yeah. that's the, that's that's how you have somebody that's skilled is to actually do the thing and get away scot-free. You know, that that's our job when we're trying to do any of this stuff. I mean, not always, because sometimes people back in history, for sure, have fought for different reasons. You have to uphold the honor of your family or, you know, your only right. option is to die. Or if you don't die, then something else happens. You know, I understand that this is this is a very simplistic idea, but for my context, which is self-defense, I mean, in the Philippines, Sonny's context sort of ranged from fighting the pirates on the beach, self-defense, you know, you're getting mugged on the jungle trail or whatever, um, or in the side street in, you know, urban Cebu, or, or challenge matches. And so these are the contexts that these fights were sort of, you know, part of. And the idea is that you want to live and go home after. And again, that going home after is obviously sort of cycling back why Rory and I got on also because that's you know his whole thing is like you do the thing and then you go home the point is to go home yes absolutely the point is to to go home and it's it is pleasant to sleep in a whole skin yes i think so i mean you know that's the thing i point out is that swords were i mean i don't know if you agree with this but sword was the first thing that humans designed specifically to kill people you know like knives you can do a whole bunch of stuff with right but, but the sword yeah, knives started out as tools. Spears started out for hunting animals to eat. Yeah, but the sword is expressly for killing people. Yeah, killing people, and the reason why it's designed as it is is because it's really good at it. That's right. You know, we're squishy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, we're squishy on the outside and the inside, and it, you know, it's like if you make holes, you know, you bleed out. You know, this is what it's for. You know, and so that whole idea about it is a very specific weapon that sort of sort of defines your tactics i think is a it's very important that the idea is you use it because you want to live not because you want to die second well it, exactly i mean i remember a, a good friend of mine uh, called stefan deek who's a historical martial arts instructor in germany he was watching a sport fencing tournament and in an epe match somebody won five four right and he won the match and got the medal okay and I can remember the look on Stefan's face when he said, guy, that's nine dead people. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, yeah. And people forget that, right? I mean, it's one of the things I write about. Right. Everybody thinks you've got a 50-50 chance, right? And, and you actually really don't in a match like that. I mean, not sport, obviously, because they were fighting to the rules. Sure. But, you know, 
you've only got four options, right? You've got win-win, which is maybe you both kind of back away. But, you know, apart from lose-win and win-lose, you've got lose-lose. And that is the most common. Yeah. And and it's, you know, I I do uh, training with sharp swords. And very often the first time um, students take a sharp longsword against a sharp longsword and start doing drills like that, everything changes for them because suddenly the consequences of that thing just touching them is so much greater. You know, blunt swords are great. They're totally necessary. And training with plenty of protection is great. It's totally necessary. It's a really useful part of the process. But no protection, sharp on sharp. Don't do this at home. Do this under careful professional supervision. But no protection, sharp on sharp, kind of, I think gives you a window into the psychology of the act, basically the, the fundamental, the foundation of the art itself is when you see that sharp blade coming towards you and the things you will do to get away from it. Absolutely. Yeah, it totally changes it. And, you know, the, the resistance I get to some things, where I was like, you can't take that hand cut. And they're like, oh, you know, I'll take that cut. I'm like, don't get your hands hit. Don't get your hands what? hit. Oh, yeah. I love the like, okay. I, could, I could take that cut of people that that really <laughs> I was like, yeah, maybe, okay. you know, I'm not saying you should stop fighting because you got a cut, you know, you, you know, I understand it. But why no, train? Right, right. <laughs> no, you definitely shouldn't train to take the cut. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm a woodworker um, for a hobby. And, you know, I cut myself very regularly and it's never pleasant. And, and, and they're much more minor little injuries than you know, a proper knife cut to the hand. That does a lot of damage. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, okay, you won, but now you have lost use of your right hand forever because your tendons are severed. It's like, you know, it's like that might happen. You know, that might happen, but let's train to try and avoid it, shall we? This reminds me of, I think somewhere there's a small sword treatise that actually recommends getting the the point of your opponent's weapon to go through the palm of your hand and you slide your hand down the blade and you grab the handle. Right. Yes. It it could, it could be that I'm making that. I'm, I'm going to have to check it and I'll put the results in in the show notes. I'm just going to make a note here. Um, But there is at least one record of that actually happening in a small sword fight. Um, But I don't think the person who did it would recommend it. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think, you know, I, I think the idea that, that that occurred to them once they had their hand stabbed was a good one, you know. Yeah, it, it's, exactly. It's, it's it's like the, um you know, the move that you've seen in movies, like Japanese movies or, you know, like fake Japanese movies usually. Or, or yeah. it's in Blade, I think, Blade 2, you know, the, the <laughs> you know, with Wesley Snipes, you know, where they kind of, yeah. Yeah, they got he's got the katana and he kind of slaps his palms on the side of it and holds it and then twists it. It's like, you know, that's apparently a technique. And then <clears throat> everybody's like, oh, <clears throat> that's really stupid. But then my uh, Japanese sword teacher friend basically said to me, so, well, what that used to mean was that you were with a whole bunch of other people on the battlefield and somebody stabbed you. Your job was to clamp your palms around it and hold it in you so your friends could kill him. Ah, that makes more sense. Right? So I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, that totally way makes way more sense. You know, we we do we do grab blades. I mean, yeah. in a sword fight, long swords, for example, uh, it's perfectly safe if you do it correctly yep. to grab a, a European-made long sword by the blade, no problem. 
I mean, Fiora shows it in several places. And, and I've done that, it. I do, I do it on people too mm-hmm. if they're waving it out right. in the air, just on, right. on, across the top. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, it's perfectly easy to do it without cutting yourself, but it's not – you wouldn't try and catch a sword in motion that way generally. Well, again, it's about it that opportunity, right? And then grab it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, it was there. It's a gift. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, you know, and that's actually one um, of Rory Miller's things. It's like everything's a gift. It's like, oh, they did that. It's a gift to me. You know, it, it, you know there's that, that great, <clears throat> you know, joke that the gods play on us, which is uh, <clears throat> uh, when you strike, you're open. Like your defense is away from your body. So every time you're attacking, you're open. You know, so every time yeah. they're attacking, they're also open. And so, you know, it, it, it's there's always opportunity. You know, so all you have to do is, which sounds so simple, right, is just not be where they are and be where they're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good luck. Because, <laughs> of course, they're trying to do the same thing. And they're watching you move and they're coming after you. Right. Yeah. So this it's, is... This yeah. is <laughs> these things are very, very simple. Yeah. But they're not easy. Well, I mean, and that's exactly why the Hustler book came out, um, because if you're both doing it physically, what else can you play with? Um, I actually, I, it was actually the first book that the that, 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 that Lie, the Cheat and the Thief um, was in partly inspired by, I was trying to teach people how to fake and bait, which basically is acting, right? I mean, it's acting. And, um, yeah. and it turned out that people don't know what they look like. You know, people would be doing kind of like weird little twitches or strange little motions. And I'm like, what's that? He's like, I'm faking. I was like, yeah, no, you're not. It's like, <laughs> you know, faking is um, a subtle thing. It, it involves you knowing what you look like when you act and the other person recognizing what you're doing and falling for it. Yeah. And then, yeah, yeah, exactly. and then the reason why they're falling for it is usually because um, there's a reason for it. So, for instance, you can't fake somebody out of range. Right. Like, they have to believe they can hit you, which is why the fake works. Like, or, you know, a bait yeah. works if you're in, in their range or, or a fake. I, I like to uh, – sorry, I'm sort of blabbering here, but I think I, a fake to me is me feigning a threat to my opponent, which they have to deal right. with. And a bait, in my mind, is – me looking as though they can hit me. So it looks like I'm feigning an error. Okay. Yeah. So, the, the terms I think the listeners are probably more familiar with is faint to give the impression of, a, of an attack that's actually going to go into a different line and um, invitation, which is offering a an opening for them to strike into. But yes, the concepts are exactly the same. Yeah. So yeah. It, and I practice mine with video cameras and mirrors. So I know exactly what I look like. Yeah, and, you know, so it's like when I fake, you need to believe that I can actually hit you. And when I bait, it, you need to feel like you can actually hit me, which usually kind of means that you kind of can. It's just that your yeah, footwork exactly. and your motion is better <laughs> dealing with it. You yeah, know? And, and you should never, ever, ever give, give out invitations unless you've prepared the event for them to arrive at. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, there's always three options, right? It's like they buy it, they don't buy it, or they just count. Like they defend or they they, they, they don't care and they counter, right? So it's like you need to be able to, when you do it, notice that they've gone for it or not. And, you know, if they don't go for it, maybe you can still just hit them straight on, you know. So you have like, you know, but you also have to have your defense online as well just in case they really don't. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay. So are you writing anything else? Do you have another book coming? No. <laughs> really? I, mean, I really didn't I think, think I had probably a second Okay, well, I think maybe maybe give it give it a little bit of time to to percolate. I, I'm pretty sure there's another book in there. Well, yeah, I mean, I just don't know what I'd write about. I feel like I've said everything already, just like I did after the first one. You know, <laughs> we kind of mentioned yeah. this pre, you know, right at the beginning before we were recording that I'm much better in conversation. I don't have like ideas that come out of nowhere. You know, the second one came out because I was verbalizing as I was driving along how to explain something to somebody that I was trying to convince them of something they knew nothing really about, like something new. And so that's how the book came out. So it's about conversation that brings out the idea about like what's missing, what people aren't getting, you know, what, what, I don't want to put more books into something where there's already way too much, you know, I want to write something because it's not written about exactly like that before you know something new to spark people's creativity and imagination okay well i i shall well when you get your idea let me know and i'll be happy to be the other side of that conversation well yeah i mean you know suggestions you know definitely taken you know uh somebody tried to it did it did try to uh, convince me to write fiction so i'm not sure okay <laughs> yeah, have you have you have you turned your hand to fiction at all? Have you tried it? Well, when I was at school, I wrote stories all the time. But now that I've become an adult, I've you know basically failed on that front. So I've become less imaginative, perhaps. I don't know. Okay. Well, I I wouldn't be surprised if there's a novel in there too, or at least at least a collection of short stories, probably involving knives and swords. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes you never know that what will come out. I mean, I'm a painter. I paint and, you know, the images that I have in my head of what I'm going to paint very rarely come out. Like a lot of very different things come out than what's in my head. You know, I was like, oh, wow, that's so weird. I'm painting flowers. Where did that come from? So you really don't know what's in there. Mm. Okay. Um, so what is the best idea you've not acted on? Best idea that I have not acted on? Mm. Oh, goodness. <clears throat> yeah, you did kind of pre-warn me of this, and I've been thinking about it, and I don't know. I mean, there's just... Well, I mean, one... Go usually, ahead. usually my guests, um, they, they fall into two camps. Either they are very executive, sort of execution-oriented, and so when they have a good idea, they act on it, and so they don't have any ideas that they wanted to act on that they haven't acted on. and most other people have like there's one clear thing that they would really like to have done by now, but they haven't gotten around to actually doing it. Maybe it's starting a school or writing a book. I mean, you've written two books and you have a school, so you know that they probably don't count. But um, so I'm, I'm guessing, given that you've got your books out, I'm guessing you've probably actually done your good ideas. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's definitely things I wish I'd done when I had the opportunity <clears throat> or I wish that times had been different in the past that made certain opportunities more available to women, for instance, but there's nothing really I can right, complain sure. about. I mean, I think I would have liked to have ridden around the world on a motorcycle and I never really actually did that. I mean, I traveled enough and did ride a motorcycle, but, okay. you know, that would have been fun to do. That would have been a cool experience, I suppose. But, you know, some of the things too are just not necessarily – you know, you have like fantasy things that would be really, really fun, but then the reality is probably not exactly the same. <laughs> well, 
Well, yeah, that's that's always always the case. I, I can imagine though riding around the world on a motorbike would be would be kind of fun, particularly if you can like do it with like blades festooned around you. Right? Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> it would be very cool. <laughs> but maybe not terribly practical. No, not terribly okay. practical. You'd have um, to have a fairly short sword on a motorcycle, otherwise, you, you know, it'd be hard to carry. Yes, indeed. Um, okay, so now my, my last question, uh, and how you interpret the question is as interesting as the answer itself. Um, somebody gives you a million dollars or a similar amount of money to spend improving sword training worldwide. How would you use that money? Oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, I really think what Sonny gave me is incredibly valuable and would help other people, but that's kind of egocentric. I think one of my fantasies has always been to have like a salon, you know, I mean, you know, in this, uh, okay. you know, in this sort of old ideas about old Europe and their fencing salons, but have it be yeah. like actually have a beautiful building, you know, but really host other people too and like minds and, you know, have like a think, not really a think tank, but a do tank, I suppose. You know, I love playing with okay. different systems and inviting people that I think are interesting thinkers to collaborate. And I think that would be a really fun thing to be able to set up so that you could have like this ongoing center, you know, for for doing that. Of course, I'd have to be kind of king of it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, when I moved to Finland in 2001, within a few months, I actually had not in a beautiful building, in like an industrial building, um, 20 minutes out of town, but a full-time sal. And it makes all the difference having a permanent space. Yeah. Because you can you can host events and create events at the drop of a hat. And I never got lots and lots of different instructors there at the same time. But when I used to travel around for seminars, what I was basically doing, and you know, going to events um, like Sword Squatch, um, I was basically there to audition guest teachers for the school uh -huh. so when i saw somebody who i liked and i thought okay they've got something interesting to offer i would pay them to fly to finland and we would have seminars in the school that's great um and yeah having this having the space made that so much easier and more practical yeah no the space is nice and also just the environment and the culture that you're kind of creating around it I mean, for me, I think that right. learning is kind of campfire learning where you have a whole bunch of people that are hanging out long enough with each other to start really talking. And then let's stand up and try that. I have no idea, you know, so that there's like a, there's more yeah. time. I really like money not to be associated with training. I think that would make everything a lot better so that you could invite people and, you know, maybe it's just you and them, but you could pay them to come over, you know, and it would be great, you know, and then you sure. sort of collaborate on projects and you know, discuss stuff. It's like, I don't have time to research HEMA, but there's a whole bunch of cool stuff in there that would be really fun to talk about and to sort of, you know, okay. brainstorm around and stuff like that, you know? Um, so, yeah. Well, yeah. I guess so what I would, the way I did it is um, I would run a weekend seminar, which my students would attend, and there would be this guest instructor teaching the seminar, and that would pay for the instructor to come over. But, of course, they'd always stay a few extra days. Right. Sometimes they stay an extra week. Right. Sometimes they do two weekend seminars and I'd have them for the whole week in between. Perfect. And that's what actually I was doing. I didn't really care so much about the seminar because that was aimed at my students who are obviously a lot less experienced, uh, at least certainly in the early days. Uh, but getting somebody whose work you like and basically just hanging out with them for like three days, four days with a room full of weapons that you can just go to to try stuff out in. 
I mean, I think that was probably the the single best or it kind of the the thing that contributed to my development as a historical martial arts instructor probably more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, absolutely. I think your do tank idea is brilliant. Yeah, no. I mean, I've had enough people stay at my house when they come into town. Really great people, Ed Calderon, you know, Toby Rory, you know, a whole bunch of the violence dynamics people, you know, stayed with me. And it's just been a blast sitting around the kitchen table, having coffee in the morning and seeing what comes out or then late night whiskey and vodka fests, you know. So <laughs> yes. sadly, the room yeah, here is enough to, 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 to sort of, you know, play too much with weapons but to be able to do that somewhere nice maybe like a finish by a finished lake in a lovely cabin somewhere would be really really super neat yeah that would be good okay maybe we should make that happen I, i'm down i'm totally into it I, i'd be very happy to participate in that all we have to do is find the million pounds or dollars or what we're, we're using oh it's not that expensive if we've got the space and we've got the the lake then you know the rest is just flights and I know, but it would be nice to have like a trust yeah, yeah. that would kind of like earn enough money that it would perpetuate. So this is this is my thing. That, that is, yes, but we have to start somewhere. Yes, yes, I'm in. Uh, <laughs> excellent. All right, Maya. Well, thank you very, very much for talking to me today. Um, it's been a very interesting conversation. I hope you've enjoyed it too. And I look forward to uh, doing some random flow with you next time I see you. Oh, absolutely. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. You were really super fun to chat with at Sword Squatch. And as you said, there's never enough time. There's too much going on and stuff. So I, I really enjoyed it too. So I was very excited that you decided to invite me onto this, um, this uh, interview thing that you're doing. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Maya Soderholm. Remember to go along to guywindsor.net forward slash podcast for the episode show notes and for your free copy of Writing for Swordfight and your free copy of Sword Fighting for writers, game designers, and martial artists. You'll be amazed at how many times I have to retake these outros because I get the title of my own damn book wrong. <laughs> it happens all the time. If you'd like to support the show, the simplest way to do it is simply tell your friends about it and make sure that they start listening because nothing gets people turned on to a podcast quite like word of mouth. You can also uh, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And if you'd like to rate it or even review it on your podcast hosting app, then that would be marvellous too. And of course, thanks here go to my lovely patrons at patreon.com forward slash the sword guy who support the show directly and who have all sorts of influence over it, such as asking me to, to pose particular questions to upcoming guests um, early access to the transcriptions, that sort of thing. The patron support helps pay for the transcriptions, helps pay for the podcast hosting and all the other expenses associated with putting on a show like this. So if you would like to support us there, that would be marvellous and I would appreciate it very much. And of course, my undying gratitude goes to my existing patrons who are there already. Now, tune in next week when I'll be talking to David Ito. David Ito is a circus performer and swordsmanship practitioner. Uh, we go into some interesting depth and details about how he trains, including a bizarre, well, bizarre is perhaps the wrong word if you're a fencer, but anyone who is not a fencer would look at this thing and go, oh dear God, that's bizarre. Um, fencing footwork machine. 
So if you're curious as to what that might be, tune in next week when I'll be chatting with David and you will find out all about it. I'll see you then.